talking about the largest company on the planet. So uh, Apple, trillion dollar business, all of these sorts of things. The largest one that will exist in 2030 doesn't currently exist. The, 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 this view of utilize and improve and all of the resources, all the opportunities that we may or may not have, the opportunity that exists in the unknown in the Explore and Transform is exponentially larger when we're in a compounding reality in a compounding world. Welcome back everyone to the Geeks, Geezers and Googleization show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geek Skeezers Googleization. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. I'm Ira Wolf. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work confronting business leaders and people today. Our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the ever-changing convergence of business, technology, and people. Well, buckle up, folks, because I'm excited to welcome back to the Geek Skeezers and Googleization show my friend, my colleague, and my AQ mentor, the Yoda, the Jedi Master of Adaptability, Ross Thornley. Ross will join us very shortly. But in prepping for this show, I discovered an old blog post of mine that featured a video titled Technology Versus Humanity, and we're hearing a lot about that these days. Uh, the subtitle was The Future Is Already Here. That was in 2019. It's put out by Gerd Leonhard, and I'm a huge fan of his. Check him out. I'll put a link in the show notes later for the video, but I pulled a few clips or a few quotes from it, and most notable was, never in human history has the present been so temporary. So let me help you make that real. When this year's high school graduation class was born, so about 18 years ago, there was no iPhone, no iPad, and half of the world population was still using dial-up internet. Wow. So if we go back a little further in that, and here's a couple more examples of how fast the world is changing. It took 50 years for 50 million people to use the telephone. It took only two years for 100 million people, double that, to use an iPhone. It took 46, million year, or 46 years for 50 million people to use electricity, but it only took four years for 100 million people to use Google. It took three years for 50 million people to use Facebook, and it took less than five months for 100 million people to adopt ChatGBT. We are facing a technological change like, like nothing else before, and it's only beginning. So a second part of this is the age of supercomputers is here. The fastest laptop available for us, and most of us don't even have that speed, is 28 million times faster than the human brain. A supercomputer is going to be 100 times more powerful than the fastest laptop, and quantum computers, which are coming on board shortly, within the next few years, will be 158 million times faster than the human brain. So we still have to start asking, what does that mean for the future of work, future of healthcare, future of medicine, transportation, logistics, energy, communications, 
our lives will continue to be disrupted faster and at a greater scale than most of us ever thought possible. And adaptability will be the essential life skill all of us needs. This leads me to our perfect labor storm segment this week. In each episode, we focus on a disruptive, surprising, worrisome trend that we believe you should know. So what happens when people don't have the ability to adapt in our never normal world? Well, we're experiencing that because if you've been listening to Geek Skeezes and Googleization over the last few months, it won't surprise you to know that burnout and workplace stress are at an all-time high. Just yesterday, the Gallup, Gallup's new 2023 State of the Workplace, Global Workplace report came out. And still, only 23% of employees reported they are thriving at work. That means more than three out of four workers are not engaged, and almost one-fifth of them are miserable. The number one thing that most people would change about their work is to make it a better culture. And this fits perfectly with our conversation today about Ross, because part of his research and his work has identified that the uh, the impact of environment on our ability to grow and to innovate. The culture from Gallup was the top recommended change requested by employees by 41% of the respondents. And Ira, to go along with that incredible report, there was a fascinating quote in there, in the report, and it was from the World Bank's chief economist, Endermeet Gill. And this was the claim that he made in that report. A lost decade could be in the making for the global economy. The ongoing decline and potential growth has serious implications for the world's ability to tackle the expanding array of challenges unique to our times, including stubborn poverty, diverging incomes, and climate change. He says the message is clear. Economic growth is slowing, and if we don't increase global GDP, every other problem that we're trying to solve and confront will get harder to solve, which is why I love the title for today's episode with Ross, Mediocrity Just Got Automated. Our old ways of thinking and doing things are inadequate for solving the problems of today and the future. And the Gallup data that you just referenced in the perfect labor storm, Ira, they make it very clear that the number one reason we aren't advancing as well as we should be is because we're still struggling with this whole healthy work culture problem, you know, which is the driver for not only helping people feel good about their work, but also creating value in the marketplace and solving these new challenges in front of us. And organizations can only adapt and grow if the people inside the organization are adapting and growing to meet those changing demands. And yes, this means embracing changes going on around us, including AI. And this is why I'm encouraging everyone I meet, and I know you are too, Ira, start using AI like ChatGPT to learn it and get a feel for it. Don't worry, you're not going to break anything. But start playing with it and understanding the value and transformation that it can bring, not only for what you're doing in business, but how it might be able to help you in your personal life. Because avoiding it and living in fear or denial is simply going to keep you on a path of mediocrity that eventually will lead to nowhere. In fact, just last night, I discovered a tool called Coefficient that actually works inside Google Sheets with data sets. It's AI-driven, 
And all you have to do is type in the command of what charts and graphs you want it to make, and it'll create it. So gone are the days of you having to spend endless hours in time creating pivot tables and all that stuff. We now have AI power to do that. But instead of doing things the old way, like I've always done them with the spreadsheets, I sought out a new way. It took me just a few minutes. I tinkered with it, figured it out. And now I've got an AI solution that can come alongside and help me with things like that. Little wins like that, I believe, are the chances that all of us have to take to learn, grow, and adapt in new ways that'll end up adding up in the long run to help overcome the mediocrity of working, you know, the way that we're currently working. And there's no one better to help us understand how to develop and use these adaptability muscles that we need than Ross Thornley, as you pointed out, the CEO and co-founder of AQAI. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and give a warm Googleization Nation welcome to today's guest, Ross Thornley. Welcome to the show, Ross. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Ira. It's great to be here. Welcome. Welcome back to the show, I should say, because as Ira pointed out, you were on previously. And so we can't thank you enough. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack there that we're going to get to. But first, tell us about your journey of, of who you are and how you got interested in this whole concept of adaptability. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think all of us you know, we have an in interesting journey, interesting stories, interesting evolutions we experience. And most of the time, we can really only connect the dots when we look backwards, right? And we kind of say, ah, where was the thread? Where was the piece throughout it? What, is, what has stayed the same and what has shifted? And I think fundamentally, my journey has always been about how humans communicate, and how we actually interact with each other. So my, my initial journey started out, I'll, I'll take you back to a moment in school when you have your careers advisor, right? And you go to your careers advisor and they say, what do you want to do? And I was adamant I wanted to do graphics, graphic design. And at the time, there was no work experience that you could do for graphic design that was in their lists, right? There wasn't anybody I had relationships with, nothing that was going on. By the way, I sought out a uh, old sign writer uh, where you used to literally with a paintbrush do sign writing. And I went on Saturdays at really early age to go and practice graphical sign writing uh, and things. So I, I said, OK, well, I want to do this. Can I go and do it by myself? And at those days, it was the yellow pages, you know, so a bit like an old printed book of all the companies. And I went through the list and I started phoning them up and I said, do you take on? you know, uh, work experience and finally found a company that would take me in. And I went for a couple of weeks, absolutely loved it. And my first sort of version of myself was very much in graphical communication and worked for a diff few different publishers, organizations when it was film output, you know, operating the scanning machine when people would send in, you know, slides and various things for us to uh, scan to go into magazines. And it evolved to then more or less 20 years of working right in the mix of innovation, brand, communication, and build up an agency. And I saw that very much as my schooling as an entrepreneur. Yes, we go to a traditional school. I went to college. I went to college a little bit early. I didn't go to university. I just wanted to get out there, just wanted to get working. I came from my two parents. Both of them were when it was my form, sort of forming years, they were teachers. And my father started out as a 
engineer. He was an apprentice at Rolls-Royce Jet Engines, then had an interesting path of change. They became hoteliers. They moved to Bournemouth, bought hotels and restaurants and teaching. And so it was very much this mix of education with an entrepreneurial upbringing. So for me, it's interesting that going through a design agency and a brand agency, it was this combination of educating people on how to communicate, how do we design, and you know, an entrepreneurial journey of figuring out how do you provide value in the world? How do you build teams? How do you nurture teams? And going from somebody who loved graphics to then, ah, I'm employing people. And how do I manage people? And how do I lead people? And then trying to convince clients to do things. And it came to the point I exited and sold the agency in 2017. It was at the point when we'd done a big project for one of the UN agencies. And it was this mix for me of a calling towards sustainable development goals. So this to-do list for the planet. So these big challenges and this emergence of all of the compounding effects of technological shifts. So we were seeing robotics, quantum computing, AI, all of these layering on each other to be able to imagine a sci-fi like world was upon us and we could go and play in that area. Got involved in innovation, started thinking about people that ended up in the reality of it was never a technological issue. It was always a human one to why people, organizations wouldn't change, wouldn't see what the new opportunities were of these technologies. It was a human issue. It was a human challenge that was, that was often preventing a shift. So together with my founder, Mike, we went deep, went deep into the science research, collaborated with lots of people to come out with this model to understand the sort of how, who, why, and when people adapt so that we can make sure no one's left behind. So as we see all of these shifts, you know, what a great intro for, 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 that you welcomed in and every single one. The, the slowest pace of change we're experiencing is, you know, so uh, that whole challenge is an interesting one. And I've, I've always embraced it with a smile, with joy, but there's many people who don't, who are super fearful, who are super, ah, I don't recognize it. It looks alien. It looks strange. It didn't look like something before. So therefore I want to, you know, avoid it. So Ross, I mean, I, we've worked, I met you, I think about three years ago and, and we've worked together since and, and what a journey it's been. But one of the things that was most impressive to me was the model that you came up with, because we talk about adaptability and people confuse adaptability and flexibility. And then we hit, you know, three years ago, we, we, we basically had this, this hugest disruptive force that most of us, we think we'll ever see, although <laughs> I, I don't know anymore, but, you know, in March of 2020, we basically all went on a global lockdown. And the words that were coming out was nobody really talked about adaptability. People said, we need to be more flexible. We need to be more resilient. We need to be more gritty. And you had, you had already come up with this ACE model. Yeah. And so if you can quickly, you know, kind of Give an brief the audience into yeah. what that is, because I, I think it, it helps understand that adaptability isn't equal to resilience. Resilience is only part of that bigger picture. I, I think you raise an interesting point. Whenever we come across something, in order to leverage it, either improve it, we need to understand it. We need a common language. We need this lexicon that gives us an ability to understand nuances, differences, to then realize, how do I apply it? Will this solve something or will it make it worse? 
And so that model that we wanted to look at, and I've been a big fan of psychometrics throughout my own career. I've used lots of them in my building my own teams to try and figure out and understand people and then try and predict what might happen if, what might happen when. And a lot of that is based on you know, historical pieces and singular views, singular views of an individual. And of course, we're more complex than that. We exist in teams and we exist in an environment. So what we wanted to make sure when we were building out this model and understanding is what already exists, what actually applies to ability, uh, to adaptability, and also within the context of work. So just because we can measure something and we think it might be related, we needed to see evidence that it would impact an outcome at work. So either driving innovation or reducing work stress. So briefly, Ira, you mentioned our model. It's called our Adaptiotic Table, and it's ACE. So A-C-E stands for ability, character, and environment. So those three components are the master dimensions of ability that we've put in our model. So our AQ ability, which is a learnable skill, is looking at how and to what degree do I adapt as an individual. And so these are things like grit, their mental flexibility, so that's your cognitive flexibility. It's your mindset, so elements of growth mindset, but particularly around change. Then we have resilience, and we have another skill called unlearn, so our ability to unlearn, see new information, new data that's come to us, reevaluate that situation, and be able to let go of past playbooks, past processes, past beliefs when we have that new information coming in. So those are our five abilities. Next comes our character, and maybe many of the listeners are more familiar with this around personality, personality profiling. Our character is trying to look at who adapts and why. So we're looking, we have two from the big five. So emotional range, that's neuroticism, extroversion, hope, motivation style, and thinking style. So these are trying to look at who adapts and why, not that necessarily, oh, one is adaptable and one isn't. You know, an introvert isn't adaptable, an extrovert is. It's not that way. We need to understand it as people and as managers. When we understand, we can then tap into allowing somebody to change through desire, not through friction or through compliance. So if you really understand the who and the why within the character, that's a multiplier and accelerant to adoption, to change either of an individual or the system. Because of course, we can change ourselves, we can adapt ourselves, or we can adapt a, a process, or we can adapt industry and external things to all aim for value and efficiency and the outcomes that we're looking for. The most surprising that over the years that we've been developing this and now seeing it out in the wild, you know, a few thousand organizations leveraging this is environments. This is when does somebody adapt and to what degree? So these are things like company support, the emotional health of the environment, not the emotional health of me. So you talked about only 23% of people feeling like they're thriving in that Gallup report. So is it an environment that allows a thriving situation? Team support, so that uh, imagine psychological safety, the work environment of the systems and processes that exist to allow for adaptation. So the speed of feedback loops, the ability to run experimentations, and finally work stress so that we start to understand the impacts of work stress. We need some stress to make a change. In fact, there's a positive part of stress, you know, you stress, uh, but too much can be paralyzing, same as not enough. I'm complacent, I'm happy, I'm not stressed enough to make a change in the world. 
So that broadly is the main uh, aspects of the model. We have some predictive indexes around change readiness, reskill index. We have some other dimensions around behaviors, particularly around innovation and change for exploring and transforming versus utilize and improve. But those components, broadly speaking, the main science and data that underpins platform and our assessment. And Ross, with that, a follow-up question I have with that is, you, you kind of brought out that there's this environment piece. There's also the the attributes and, and characteristics and abilities and things within people. Have you seen that typically the things that are a challenge for people when it comes to becoming adaptable, are they the same challenges that organizations face when trying to create adaptable environments? Or are they somewhat different in terms of what organizations struggle with compared to with an individual person? Well, we are both subject to and part of an environment. So an environment, we're subject to this situation that we experience within that, but we're also contributing to it, it like culture, for example. We are both contributing to the culture as much as we are subjected to that culture that, that joins in. So it ebbs and flows. And I think if I understand your question right, Jason, you know, are the challenges similar for organizations as they are for individuals? Well, essentially, organizations are made up of individuals, right? They're made up of individuals about how we're making decisions, what are we driving, and how we're shifting between value propositions, what was valuable, either a skill set I provide or a proposition to the marketplace that manifests in software, in service, in food, in whatever it may be. And at what point is there a disruption between that? So we'll see it first within individuals and then in lagging within organizations. And we'll equally see the opposite, that we'll see it happening first within the organization and lagging within some individuals. So we have this duality and this paradox of this amoeba moving in multiple directions of these people trying to drive change and the company as a whole trying to drive change, which is what makes it the beautiful dance, right? And I think the opportunity we have right now is to instead of investing half a million in the research and development of one project, of one piece, of one hunch, and take a year to think about that, we can perhaps do 50 and invest just a few thousand for each and do one a week. And as an organization and individuals, we can have all of these little micro experiments that can allow us to learn much quicker, to uh, adapt much faster, which is what we need to do, and equally not be so big betting, you know, because everything before, it took so much resource, it took so much effort, things were hard to get done, that we had to be fairly confident about it. Whereas as you mentioned before, play with these things, they're more accessible, we don't need to spend two years and hundreds of 1000s or millions of dollars to be able to have access to something like chat GPT is now accessible for us for free or just 20 bucks. And so these opportunities are allowing a much accelerated creation and an imagination that we're now embracing. So th that I hope gives you a thought of this paradox between how organizations and individuals both subject and responsible for adaptation and change. Uh, uh, Ross, as part of that, I mean, and this is pretty well common knowledge. I mean, we're not, it sounds like hyperbole, but I believe it's 85 or 90% of all organizational change efforts fail in, in business. I mean, it's well documented by the McKinsey's and Harvard Business and MIT and everybody else. 
So you know, part of it is there, there's a model. And, and, and I think part of that, and you talk about this in your book, here's, here's a I got my copy. I know you have yours. But you talk about that, that we, we talk about adaptability, we want to do change, but there really wasn't a good measurement. And that's really what you did. I mean, this model became not only a way to identify the skills, the characteristics of individuals and the, envir the environmental impact is, but how do we measure each of that? How do we measure the impact of each of those? So you developed the, the AQAI or the Adaptability Quotient AI. And so talk a little bit about that you know, about how, how that evolved, you know, what was the basis for that and, and where's it going? You made an interesting point about change failing and change programs. Change doesn't necessarily fail. What fails is the desired outcome being achieved. So there's always change happening, but it might not be the desired outcome that was predicted, was hypothesized that, oh, we wanted this to happen. We wanted to generate this increase in market share, this increase in retention, this increase in leadership skills, this adoption of a new software program that's going to make us more efficient. And so what I think the challenge is and what's come before and what I've witnessed and experienced is often we've seen it as a process and we need these you know, frameworks, we need these things, we need agile, we need waterfall, we need Prince 2, we need all of these things to operate in and around change to make things happen to get us closer to the prediction being right, budget being right, timeline being right, outcome being right of what we wanted that was growth and valuable. What I think we've forgotten along the way and got mixed up with is that we have these complex humans dealing with some of that. We don't understand how they might adapt to a change. So we might go, oh yes, we need the champions of change or their friction, or we might make biased statements like, ah, they've been here a long time, so they're never gonna change. Or they created that systems, they've had an applause for years of saying, well done, that was wonderful, that was great. And suddenly their power or their significance is put into question by themselves because their relationship with what went before is strong. So I think what we need to go through is a decoupling of not only what has gone before, my identity, what I created, what's been successful, to allow us a, a new state, this new playbook, to be able to do change in the new environment we're in. So the first thing we have to do when change happens is do a reality check. <laughs> you know, what, is, what is really going on right here? And we recognize what's going on for us to then be able to go through that process of reflection, to look at that with new eyes and reimagine from that state. And we need to do that constantly and continually, not just at the start and certain milestones and certain you know, points, but continually look and reevaluate because things are shifting so fast. You approach something, you put some pieces into it, but the ability to kill it quickly you know, is really interesting. I remember Astro Teller, um, he's the head of X at Google, talking about how do you do real challenging things, really innovative work. And often what we do is we try and keep projects alive. Oh, what can I do to keep this alive? I need to get buy-in. I need to get the sponsors. I need to prove this. I need to do a business case around it. And what he wants to know is, I want to know super quickly how that this should be killed. So what are the two things we need to know right now that would kill it? Not of what are the things we need to know that would keep it alive, because if we kill it now, we're then going to be able to move to the next piece. 
So I think when we were looking at the AEQ um, model and starting to think about how will this affect people's roles, skills, organizational shifts in learning and development, in the way in which that they operate the new value propositions in the future, solving climate change, solving education, solving some of these big, big challenges there, it comes down to, first of all, we need to understand it. We need some kind of language. We need a measurement. And then we can identify interventions for these things rather than just talking fluffy around, oh, yes, flexibility, oh, resilience. Let's you know do some meditation. Let's do some sleep. How is that affecting the outcomes we want? And if we understand how it's affecting the outcomes we want, we can then start to consider the value of it, of investing in understanding and improving it. And we can start to just, I believe, no matter what's going on in and around a, a job, a role, a company, a team, if we get the way we can use our adaptability intelligence dialed in and worked on, all the other stuff becomes easy. All the other stuff becomes possible. And our ability to then continually be sustaining and thriving becomes not a dream, but a reality, not because of the outcomes or the events, but the way in which we live that journey using our adaptability intelligence. You've been listening to Ross Thornley. We're on the Geek Skeezers and Googleization show. He's our, our Jedi master, our Yoda of adaptability. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear a little bit about the AQ Plus mindset, which was a support system for AQ, one of, one of the abilities. I personally believe, and I think a lot of other people do, that growth mindset or, or having a, a, a growth mindset or an AQ mindset is one of the most critical pieces. Nothing else really changes if people aren't willing to, to take some risks and learn from it and, and make mistakes, but we're much more complicated than that. But when we come back, Ross, what you, you've now been doing this for four years, five years, yeah. you've accumulated a lot of data, a lot of research, now a lot of certified consultants. You're able to get even more research from that to talk about what what you found. What Now, yeah. now that we, we had the ability to measure adaptability, you know, what are some of the early findings that we have? And then uh, we'll go from there. So we're going to take a That's quick right. break. Thanks for listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Thanks for being part of Googleization Nation. We will be right back. Are your employees feeling stuck and just showing up for a paycheck? Is your workforce working harder to get back to normal than adapting to the future? It's time to help them break their addiction to certainty and develop a growth mindset. Developed by one of the world's top-rated future of work thought leaders, AQ Plus Mindset is a powerful tool to help your employees embrace change, adapt faster, and grow on the job. Conveniently delivered to any smartphone or laptop and easy to digest 5 to 10 minute lessons. Managers can sit back and watch employee attitude shift towards growth and innovation in just 30 days. Are you ready to help your employees thrive in this ever-changing, never-normal world? Encourage them to show more grit, resilience, adaptability, and unlock their potential? The journey to a growth-filled future starts with a growth mindset. Visit aqplusmindset.com or call 484-373-4300. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We're here today with our Jedi Master of Adaptability, Ross Thornley. I forgot to mention this in the beginning. I have a new book coming out. It's about self-empowerment. So we talk about growth and adaptability and, and purpose. 
and the meaningful work and all the things that we're doing, you can get it for free. So um, this is sort of a oxymoron, but you can pre-order a free book that will be available in about four to five weeks. But if you want to make sure that you're first to get it, you can go to my website, ibrawolf.com. There will be a pop-up there, but if you want to go directly to the page, go to the-change-book, ibrawolf.com, the-change-book. And uh, you'll all we need is an email. And as soon as it's available, you get a copy of that. There's also 19 other authors. It's a co-authored book. So lots of different ways for self-empowerment. I'm sure if it's not my chapter, it will be somebody else's chapter and insights that will help. But meanwhile, we're talking with we're talking with Ross today, Ross Thornley. Ross, when we left off, we were talking about the, you talked about the ACE model and there was five abilities and, and there were, there are five environmental impacts. What were, what are some of the findings that, that, that we're able to identify now? Is there one area that you can, you would never want to generalize it, but is there one area that you would say if companies are going to start with, this is, this is the path, this is where, the way to go? It's a really interesting question. We get asked it uh, quite often when companies are new to this and they come in and it's always important to understand, again, their own objectives and their own reality check. So the reality check that the AQ profile gives them and score is one component to the data input. The other part might be what's going on in that organization? Have they had a leadership shift? Has the market adapted? Um, and they haven't. Are they under high pressure from shareholders? You know, so there's always various different challenges. Have they got talent retention issues? And so it's a combination, I think, Ira, in terms of looking at the contextual reality check of the organization, the data that's coming from the AQ profile and the AQ team aggregated reports, and then tying it up with the desired objective reduce stress, retain talent, you know, drive innovation. And then that can help you unlock some common pathways of where you might start. So if I give a couple of examples of that, we have been working for a number of years with a UN agency uh, based out in Vienna. There it's UNIDO. So they're the industrial development organization inside the UN system. There's about 2,000, just over 2,000 employees and staff there. And They've had a shift over the years that we've worked with them of structure, of structure. And I'm sure many organizations have the same. New CEO comes in in their uh, language, new director general comes in. And there's often shifts in leadership, in roles, in responsibilities. And that movement creates opportunity. It also creates confusion in some cases. And the for, for them, their whole aspect was how can we drive innovation? How can we drive innovation internally within our organization? And how can we help drive innovation within those organizations that we serve, the member states, the various companies that they're helping to embrace Industry 4.0, embracing innovation to be relevant for tomorrow? And I think for them, what was interesting that we've also seen as a commonality is this desire to get a couple of things right. Hybrid, it's a real challenge, hybrid working and digitization two big challenges. We've seen an absolute explosion of digitization where AI now is unlocking a, a realm of, wow, how do we do this? What do we do? Should we do things? If you're Samsung and you've you know put in some 
code IP and you've infringed and then it gets banned or other areas. There's so much confusion about it internally about adopting something that's new and different. So we had this desire for innovation. We had a couple of programs happening around digitization and around figuring out hybrid work. So those two components then saw out, and this was backed by some of the data that came in there, one of the key parts was unlearning. So they'd been around a long time. So they'd got embedded processes, playbooks, you know, propositions, software, ways things have done before that were now no longer serving them. They had gone from being an efficiency driver and a productivity driver to being a ball and chain that were holding them back. Policy, regulation, governance, all sorts of things, together with just habit, human habit of the way of doing things. So unlearning was a really interesting area for them to start for a few reasons. One, it was a bit new and novel as the concept, but it also became super practical for them really quickly through a few of the uh, interventions and, and outcomes. So one was unlearning. The other one is around the psychological safety and team support and company support. But if I just pick on unlearning, I'll give you one, one real example that is about the way they do things and another example of how it's affected some people individually within there without breaking too much you know, confidentiality. But one of the challenges is everyone has a communication style and that communication style might be individualized or mandated as a way in which I, your brand tone, your brand style, how do you communicate to, into the world? And the UN has a, as a whole, a brand style, a way of writing, a way of communicating. And for many inside, it was frustrating, but it's the way it's always been. So it was difficult to write in that way and nobody liked reading it in that way. And it wasn't until they saw this opportunity of thinking, what do we want to change? What's no longer serving us? Where could we start small to unlearn something? So a few of them picked, hey, what if I wrote it differently? What if I wrote it in a different style? Would it get, would I enjoy doing it more? Would it end up with the right communication and action and behavior out the other end? And would they enjoy it more? And so they had these glimmers and pockets of giving themselves permission to do something differently than they'd done before. And like our muscle, we don't go straight in on the biggest heavyweight problem, challenge, or burning fire. We start off with a little one to do those low rep, low risk repetitions of opportunity. So in unlearning, they started to build that muscle, started to gain confidence and see the ripple effect and impact that allowed them not only as individuals to see it differently, but for the, some of the systems and playbook and process to shift. So that wrapped into figuring out hybrid, how they store information, where they store information, going to cloud, all sorts of initiatives that have had blockers in the past through fear and risk that are now seeing glimmers of accelerated speed of adoption of those things, equally within roles. So a few individuals through this process of understanding the way they adapt we're able to have different dialogues within their line management and people to figure out an area where they can provide much better value than they have been before. And so it allowed a redundancy of some tasks and an opportunity of new scope, new areas that people could work in to be inspired of those things. And we need that combination of the push and pull to be able to let go of some old things that we didn't like or don't like doing 
and the room and excitement to experiment and permission to do some of the new things. So I hope that's been helpful of a, a, a more practical story of an organization of what they've been going through. And maybe some of the listeners that resonates of getting hybrid right. How do you do digitization and digital transformation within organizations? And how practically can that start and get done with people? Ross, you glossed, you glossed over this initially, but I, I think these are a couple of the more brilliant parts of, of where this, where the assess, where the AQAI can go and, and how we can measure that. So we, we, you had, you, you talked about the 15 primary dimensions, but there were other measurements of, of looking at change, the change readiness of the overall organization. But there were two, there were two scales in there that became super interesting to me. And then over the last three years, they seem to be coming out more and more. And in the book that I suggested to you and well, everybody on the planet probably, which is Tomorrow Mind. By the way, in September, Gabrielle, it's Dr. Marty Seligman, which many of many people may recognize. And then the co-author of that was Dr. or yeah, Dr. Gabriella Kellerman. She's actually going to be on Geek Skeezers and Googleization in September. So we're really we're really excited about that. Um, but they talked about the difference between explore an explore a, a mind ex- exploration yeah. and exploitation of, of a different mindset. And we've we've also had a guest and he also was a lecturer just as you are in my organizational change class, Ben Bensow. And Ben works with INSEAD University. He's an author of a book called Built to Innovation. And built to innovate, and he differentiates between an organization to need to 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 innovate or be innovating. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about when when you first started introducing the, the your your client, the study that you did with them, yeah. it brought back that to mind because people have to understand that they don't need to blow burn the ship. They don't need to burn the platform. Sometimes it's just tweaks in the system. I think um, it's a it's a really interesting point. And organizations that have longevity get good at both of these things, right? They can live in the paradox world of being able to utilize and improve. So that's all about productivity and efficiency. And we've got really good of, at that over decades. We've had the processes, systems in place to look at productivity and efficiency to to squeeze the juice out of what we do. And data is a driver of that. And it allows us to look at a way of doing something and look for those efficiencies and we can utilize and improve. So we want to extend the value over time. And we can extend it in multiple ways, right? We can do it through geographical growth, through cost reduction growth, through margin growth. So there's lots of ways that are drivers of that shift of utilize and improve what already exists. We then, at the same time, have this opportunity of exploring and transforming brand new things. And those are often difficult things to do for an organization at the same time. It's what gave birth to a lot of the skunk works, you know, the sandboxes, the areas where, hey, everything we've put here is about mitigating risk, managing what we've already got and making it more productive and efficient. If you go into that new world to say, imagine something new, you're 
you're handicapped. You're trying to do it because you're in that mind. You're looking at what exists and how can I improve it rather than not looking or, or looking at what doesn't exist. And so both as individuals and organization, that ambidexterity of innovation is required. Now, in the Explore and Transform, we need imagination. There's less data. It's uncertain. We need things like prob probabilistic reasoning, like forecasting, foresight mapping. We need to imagine. And we need to do that quickly and at speed. Coming back to my earlier point, that the experimentations required in Explore and Transform are different than the experimentations required, split testing, whatever it may be, in Utilize and Improve. Now, this has always happened throughout time. This has happened many points, and we'll have a disruption point where the current proposition way of doing thing, a skill, a software, you know, an abacus, hate, pivot tables and Excel, whatever it was that was val valuable, at some point something new will disrupt it and it no longer holds value. Now, if that happens over many years, maybe decades or generations, it kind of, it doesn't affect us much and we can feel okay with it. But if that happens multiple times within a career, or multiple times within a year, or multiple times within a month, that's really, really hard, both for the individual and organization to go through those sorts of phases. And it's where we're seeing radical creation and radical collapse and the speed of those things. So I remember listening to uh, somebody, I, you know, one of my mentors who I listen a lot to, Peter Diamandis, talking about in at the early point of this uh, decade, so... He was talking about the largest company on the planet. So uh, Apple, trillion dollar business, all of these sorts of things. The largest one that will exist in 2030 doesn't currently exist. So the, 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 this view of utilize and improve and all of the resources, all the opportunities that we may or may not have, the opportunity that exists in the unknown, in the explore and transform is exponentially larger when we're in a compounding reality in a compounding world. And so how we orbit around that, how we build our learning and development programs, how we build our workforces, where the 30 million people employed as programmers probably won't be required in four or five years time. And what else within our knowledge worker economy and all of these different things are going to radically shift to create that explore and transform that isn't centuries out, in a sci-fi, but are just years out. So that challenge of that ambidexterity of the explore and transform and the utilize and improve is that we don't know, we're not only trying to be ambidextrous and do both of them, we now need to do them much quicker and be happy with that disruption point, which is painful, it's hard, it's difficult. And it's where if we take pharmaceuticals, you know, they'll take years and years and billions to R&D a new drug. It's super expensive when it gets launched and everybody's up in arms about why is this so expensive when it just co costs a few dollars or a few bucks? Because it's taken all of that time before. Imagine if the point at which they then release it, it becomes defunct and it's no longer valuable. So this whole point of how much we put into something before it's deployed in our ability to extract value from something a, a bit of knowledge, a learning, a skill, a lesson, a proposition, its half-life is, is shrinking and shrinking. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be able to dance between all of those moments without going uh, to the sharp objects, dark rooms, and stressful situations. 
Ross, I've got to ask you one quick prediction because I know we're coming up on it on time here before we get to some of our other segments. But I do want a quick prediction. You've mentioned AI. You've mentioned reality checks. And I want to bring those together because you just brought up Peter Diamandis and yeah. talking about how Apple may not even be the biggest company by 2030 because of how much innovation. Not even Apple. Not even one we know. Exactly. Exactly. And just to support that notion, there are reports out there that eventually most of the multi-billion dollar companies will have no more than three humans working Hmm. in them. Someone who operates as CEO, someone who oversees operations, and someone who oversees product. And that's it. And everything else is going to be automated. And here's where this ties in, where I really want to hear your prediction. I feel like of all the disruptive things that are going on right now, AI is not only the biggest one right now, but it's the biggest one we've ex- any person in the history of being on the world has ever experienced. And I feel like we have a lot of people who need a reality check in terms of yeah. what it's going to mean for their job, that folks are just in denial, that they're putting their heads in the stand. So there are a lot of experts out there that fall on this spectrum with AI disruption of thinking it's mostly just going to augment most of the jobs in the economy as we know it, to the other other end of the spectrum, there are experts that are saying it's absolutely going to decimate and wipe out industries in terms of people working in those. My question for you is, where do you fall on that spectrum when you pull out your crystal ball of thinking where AI and the disruption in work is going to head? I think AI is a really broad term and we might at the moment just have the lens and see it in terms of the interface moments through, for example, you mentioned ChatGPT as one example that we're getting familiar on the masses with AI. Now, it shows up in so many other areas that then come out nested inside other products, inside robotics, inside the way in which we shift our production of food, of energy, of all of these uh, aspects. So to to come to your point, I think it's going to be so fascinating to see if we get to the point where we have abundance in a few different areas. So we have abundance in our ability to live healthily for longer. The impact of that across society will be massive if we start living into 100, 120, 150 healthily. What impact does that have on society, on work, on functions? If we get to the point where, ah, the, uh, you know, energy, energy here in the UK, prices went up, went massive. When we hit the point of having fusion deployed and we have abundance of energy at near zero cost, how does that decimate or shift or transform many industries. And of course, most of these industries want to remain in the same because it's how they gain value, whether that's the oil companies, whether that's pharmaceuticals, all of these things, they're in that same paradox. They want to create value and maintain what they've currently got, but they don't want to miss out on what's coming next that might transform and and shift that. So to, to come back to your point, a little bit of the crystal ball of these things, And it reminds me of a great book, The Company of One. I think it came out in 2016. And it was, you know, this early predictor of we don't need to, in order to scale our businesses and our impact, human beings. You know, we saw it through various shifts with machinery and various pieces. We're going to see that at another point. My belief and maybe perhaps my hope and desire is that whilst 
we can do those things and they'll become available to all of us. Let's still remember there's still half the planet that aren't connected to the internet. There is still billions that don't even have a, access to a toilet. And yet we're talking about all of these massive you know, uh, shifts in technology. I believe that there will be the creation of imagination of so many different solutions, so much choice of things that we won't necessarily need humans but in certain aspects and certain roles, but we could choose to. And I, I feel that it will be a connection of society that will want to be together, but be together in different ways. We've gone together for a lot of our lives of how we've spent our time is by working. Well, if we take care, universal basic income, various different things about how, how this might get solved, is how would we now shift our time into learning, into creating new things that we'll want to do that with other people? You know, I I have a yearning to be around other human beings and hang out and connect and communicate and tell stories and imagine. I don't just want to be a task rabbit producing things and solving problems using a computer or using technology in certain ways. I want to do it with other human beings. So I think we'll see this resurgence of gatherings, gathering well, that isn't necessarily about gathering around a workplace to work, but it will be a shift in the way that we do that. I don't know when that might happen, but I think it could be sooner than we think. Brilliant, Ross. It's almost like you were on an episode that Ira and I recorded yesterday with, with a good friend, Susan Lindner. We were talking about the very thing you just brought up, which is we've kind of been programmed to think you just have to work your 40, 60 hours a week. That's just how life is. And it's like, isn't it a beautiful picture to think and a very hopeful picture that in the future, like you said, there's universal health care. There might be some universal basic income. And we're still being more productive because we have AI that's helping augment things. But that frees up more of our life to do the things that, to move us out of what you call being task rabbits and allows us yeah. to enjoy more of the fruits of To of bring living. us joy, to bring us you know, a deep desire to connect with ourselves, with each other, with creativity in different ways that can show up. And that's not just humanity, arts, dramatization, all of these things. It's all of the above, you know, uh, whether that is in every single industry, every single area. And there's still a lot of work to be done, right? There's still a lot of work to be done around how we treat society, how we treat marginalized individuals, how we uh, imagine communication differently. We've already got brain-computer interface chips functioning now. Imagine when we get connected in different ways and we can choose these things, what might be possible and how we might interact with each other in new realms and new ways. It just fills me with, with joy and excitement, but to go in with my eyes continually open and to continually ask the questions, to continually think about the secondary, third order, fourth order impacts of decisions we make today and try and mitigate the outcomes I don't want and try and maximize the outcomes that I do want. Hey, Ross, we norm I normally close with this, but I'm afraid this will be another hour or two. So we're going to have to have you back because I usually say, what didn't we ask you, but we should have? And I think that's just going to open a whole other can of work. I could so do it in 30 seconds if you want. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I wanted to cover in pieces is the, the role of companies and organizations. 
of in relation to employment and people and what what should they be doing in that because the different roles of what should parents do for children what should schools do for children what should work do and work was always no no what do the individuals do for the company not necessarily what the company does they just write a check and do a, do a few pieces and for me the opportunity is around learning and it's the opportunity of learning and embracing learning and i know you mentioned you'd written a new book my latest one the future ready lnd professional is thinking about lnd from a new aspect a new perspective and that's the the one thing that i think is so valuable and important and a joyful part of humanity is to continually learn and explore you have an open invitation to come back and we'll ask that question and i'm I'm sure we'll eat up another hour very easily. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And with that, Ross, we're going to hop into our lightning round real quick as we get ready to close things up here. So just a few questions to get to know you a little bit better on a personal level and help our listeners do the same. So let's start with this one. If there was one person in the history of the world that you could meet or spend the day with, who would it be? My wife. Perfect. And hopefully she's watching too, so that she's got <laughs> verification of the brownie points. Absolutely. Yeah. That's who I've chosen to spend the most time intentionally with. And yeah, uh, that brings me all of the above that we've talked about in the last hour into my life. I love that. And Jerry and Rachel, when you watch this episode, just know the answers for Iron Me are the same that Ross just gave. Okay. We totally want credit for that, especially as Father's Day is coming up this Sunday here in the States. It's actually all Jerry's right. birthday today. Happy birthday, Jerry. <laughs> I'm going to have to text her after we're done with the show. Okay. Next one. How about a hidden talent? Or something people would be surprised to know about Ross Thornley? A hidden talent. Maybe my ability to, once I've seen a film, if we watch it again, I can say what it's about to happen of the script of what the people say in most films, in most cases. I can't remember it now, but if I have that visual stimulus, the connection in the way my brain works is I know what the sentence is that's coming next out of those things. And it's much to the annoyance of my family members. <laughs> I love it. That one's way more useful than mine. Mine is speaking in pig Latin. I've yet to find anything where that actually is useful in any situation. So <laughs> I love I love that one for you, Ross. And then we'll let you go on this one then. How about a favorite band or song or musician? That's a great question. And in fact, I've recently got into some music that is very much around ceremonial retreats and mindfulness work. and. I don't know the artists or the bands. I was gifted this playlist, so we'll have to get it in on the show notes of afterwards. But I'm so into it because it is helping me enter a different frequency within my body and my mind when I listen to it rather than, hey, there's this song. I love doing it because it reminds me of when I was young or it reminds me of this situation. That's what I'm really into at the moment is that music that allows me to connect with myself mentally and physically. I dig it. So a whole new level of adaptability with music, not just listening to it because you like enjoy it, but actually some health benefits potentially too. For sure. I love yeah. that, Ross. Well, thank you so much. Ross Thornley, he's the co-founder and CEO of AQAI. Check it out, everybody. You can uh, check him out, Ross, at AQAI.io. You can also find him on LinkedIn. Any other ways for people to reach out and learn more about what you're doing, Ross? You got it spot on. LinkedIn email web cool ross it's it was great to reconnect we had a great conversation last week again and i'm sure we'll be talking quite often uh in the near future thank you for all you've done 
thank you for creating the AQAI community. And uh, for anybody that follows me, they, they know we're talking about it all the time. And this is the guy behind it. So appreciate it. And definitely going to need to get you back for part two of, of many. Thanks, guys. Been a real pleasure. Thanks, Ross. We covered a lot in an hour there, Ira. And I'm glad that we're going to do a part two because we just scratched the surface. And you've taught me so much about this whole world of adaptability. And then to also hear Ross, too, there were just a lot of things for me that I learned today. One of the big ones for me, a big takeaway, was when he said, change doesn't fail. Yep. It's when you try to implement change, you don't get the desired outcomes that you were looking for. That was a big aha moment for me. How about for you? Yeah, well, it's the same. I mean, that was the top of the list, and I've been thinking about that, is is change or, or change uh, initiatives, you know, 85, 85 to 90% fail, but they something changed, no, no matter what they did. Mm. The outcome wasn't what you expected or what you wanted. And that's driven by the people. It's either missed expectations or poor implementation, one of the two. But there's uh, there's always change going on around this. But uh, the other one was, if I can read my writing here, oh, the uh, it was about the ambidextrous approach to change. The, the, to be, we need to be ambidextrous when it comes to change because we need to be both disrupting, we need to be utilizing and improving, and tweaking the one thing that's off the table is there's no room for status quo. Absolutely. And I think he also may have given us a future segment to have on the show also with the reality check. I think yeah. we can do some fun stuff with that because that's part of what we're trying to do is challenge the status quo and help bring the reality check to more folks of preparing for the future and being ready for it. Absolutely. We want to thank everybody for tuning in today um, and for following Geek Skeezer Googleization. If you haven't liked or followed uh, the podcast, we're on all the podcast platforms, uh, so you can subscribe there. And also, please join us over at YouTube. We're really growing our audience on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. Just search Geek Skeezers Googleization, or you can search for Ira on YouTube and subscribe to both of those channels and follow us there as well as we start to push more and more into video with podcasts. But until next time, I'm Jason Cochran signing off. And I'm Ira Wolf. And for those that are still watching, Scrolling across the bottom is the access to my free book, to my new book, uh, which is currently free. Uh, it's the change insights into self-empowerment. I'm one of 19 of 20 authors. So uh, in addition to my chapter on from Blasville to Brilliance is the title of that chapter. Uh, we talk about adaptability and growth and, and purpose. You can download the book for free. It will be available in four to six weeks. But if you want to sign up now, uh, you can go to ibrawolf.com forward slash the dash change dash book, or there'll be a pop-up if you just go to ibrawolf.com or just message me and I'll be happy to send you the link. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And until next week, don't let the shift hit your plans. Thanks for listening to Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. This show was produced and edited by Hilton Productions.